and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. Our first headline on today's page one is Among Causes of Iowa's Growing Cancer Rate, Alcohol. Iowa continues to have the nation's second highest rate of new cancers by Vanessa Miller. Iowa continues to have the second highest cancer rate in the nation and the fastest growing rate of many new cancers, with another 21,000 estimated this year, according to the Iowa Cancer Registry's 2024 Cancer in Iowa report released Tuesday. And while a confluence of factors are believed to be behind the state's rising cancer rates, making it the only state in the nation reporting a significant increase in incidence from 2015 to 2019, One piece of the problematic puzzle is Iowa's high rates of alcohol use and abuse, according to the new report. Alcohol is a known carcinogen and a risk factor for cancers such as oral cavity, pharynx, larynx, esophagus, colon, and rectum, liver, prostate, and breast cancer. Iowa has the fourth highest incidence of alcohol-related cancers in the country and the highest in the Midwest, matching its fourth highest ranking for adult binge drinking. It's pervasive throughout our state. I think it's a cultural thing in our state, and it's something that I think people need to be aware of. Mary Charlton, Professor of Epidemiology and Director of the Iowa Cancer Registry at the University of Iowa, told reporters, citing a 2023 study that found only 40% of the general public even know that alcohol could contribute or cause cancer. That study by the National Institutes of Health found alcohol contributed nationwide to an average of more than 75,000 cancer cases and 19,000 cancer deaths a year from 2013 to 2016, and that more than 10% of U.S. adults actually believed wine lowered cancer risk. All beverage types containing ethanol, that is, Wine, beer, liquor, increased cancer risk, according to the study. The amount of alcohol seems to matter more than type, from wine to whiskey to that beverage that's central to the Iowa Victory song about drinking on earth because in heaven there is no beer. Alcohol is one modifiable risk where Iowans stand out from the rest of the country, and that may be contributing to our high cancer rates, Charlton said. My main message today is meant to be a literal buzzkill. Defining binge drinking as five or more drinks on one occasion for men and four or more drinks for women, more than one-fifth, or 22%, of adults in Iowa reported binge drinking in 2022, well above the national average of 17%. Men more often binge drink than women, and Iowans earning more than $100,000 a year binge drink at significantly higher rates than those earning $50,000 or less, at more than 30% compared with under 20% among lower incomes. Most counties in Iowa report binge drinking rates higher than the national average, with Jackson County reporting the highest rate at 27%, and Polk, Johnson, and Lynn counties reporting rates of 23%, 21%, and 19%, respectively. The binge drinking rate in Iowa is highest among those 25 to 34, but binge drinking is a concern for younger people, too, with 23% of Iowans ages 12 to 20 having at least one drink and 15% reporting binge drinking in the last 30 days. Nationally, those 12 to 20-year-old alcohol consumption percentages are lower at 17% who had at least one drink in the last 30 days and 10% who binged. That is a concern given research on the connection between alcohol and cancer, said Michael Henry, interim director of the UI Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center. One recent paper, Henry said, found alcohol exposure for mice at an adolescent stage can have dramatic consequences on down the road for the risk of developing cancers and then the aggressiveness of those cancers in mice. So it's important to think about exposure at any time, he said, 
but in that adolescent stage, binge drinking, heavy drinking can potentially have long-lasting effects. The good news, Henry said, is reducing alcohol consumption can cut the risk. Updated dietary guidelines for Americans recommend adults either don't drink or limit their daily consumption to fewer than two drinks for men and no more than one for women. Among alcohol-tied cancers, Iowa is one of the worst leaders, with 14% of its estimated new cancers this year expected to be breast, another 14% expected to be prostate, and 8% expected to be in the colon and rectum category. While new cancer incidence rates continue to swell in Iowa, making its rate the second worst behind Kentucky, cancer deaths are expected to dip this year to 6,100 from 6,200 last year, meaning the number of cancer survivors in Iowa will continue to climb. We estimate there are almost 169,000 Iowans who have been diagnosed with cancer at some point since 1973, when the Iowa Cancer Registry began collecting data, Director Charlton said. Given our high and increasing rate of new cancers, coupled with the declining cancer mortality rate, we anticipate the number of cancer survivors in Iowa will continue to grow substantially. Although she urged education and personal responsibility in addressing alcohol use and abuse, she noted that leaving it to individuals to make that choice on their own has led to one of the nation's worst cancer rates. What are the things that we can do at a population level, whether it's policy, legislation, programming, things like that, that make it easier to make the healthy choices and harder to make the less healthy choices, Charlton asked. Price controls, such as alcohol taxes or minimum prices at which alcohol could be sold, are effective policy strategies, she said, as well as strengthening laws hold, holding alcohol vendors liable for injuries and damages caused by intoxicated customers. I know that the restaurant business would like to do away with a lot of those things, but they're really important, Charlton said. They're really important to maintain and maybe even strengthen. Also on today's front page, Iowa Senate GOP passes religious freedom bill. Democrats say measure would give individuals a license to discriminate by Aaron Murphy and Caleb McCullough. Whether proposed legislation would strengthen protections for religious expression in Iowa or provide legal cover for discrimination was at the heart of an expansive and passionate debate Tuesday by state lawmakers at the Iowa Capitol. The proposed legislation, Senate File 2095, is called by supporters the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Under it, the government would have to prove there is a compelling state interest in pursuing legal action against individuals who claim their actions were an expression of religious freedom and then that any legal remedy against them must be narrowly tailored. Supporters say the bill is needed because, in their view, U.S. Supreme Court rulings have eroded religious freedom protections that were passed into federal law in 1993. The federal law applies only to the federal government, but at least two dozen states have passed state-level versions of the legislation. The Iowa Senate debated the proposed legislation for nearly 90 minutes Tuesday before approving it, with all Republicans voting in favor and all Democrats voting against. This is a defensive major, measure, said J Senator Jeff Taylor, a Republican from Sioux Center. The courts have eaten away at religious freedom nationally. And that applies to our state as well. This is a defensive mechanism saying we need to prioritize the First Amendment. During debate, Democrats warned that such a law would give individuals legal cover to discriminate against others, especially minority religions and LGBTQ people, using religious freedom as a defense. Religious freedom is important. Those of us who are members of minority religious communities are particularly cognizant of that, said Senator Janice Weiner, a Democrat from Iowa City who is Jewish. The rule of law is also important. We cannot create exemptions that encourage people to pick and choose which laws they will follow. 
Weiner introduced an amendment that would have inserted into the bill protections against discrimination as prescribed in the Iowa Civil Rights Act. That proposed amendment was defeated along party lines. Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig who managed the bill in the Senate, said the measure is needed because he believes the, in the original intent of the 1993 federal law, which was passed by a Democrat-majority Congress and signed by Democratic President Bill Clinton. He said the Democratic Party's motivations have changed in the three decades since that law was passed. Schultz also pushed back at Democrats' arguments that the legislation would lead to state-sanctioned discrimination, calling some of the arguments during debate a drama soup. He also asserted that there has never been a case of a similar religious freedom law being used to target LGBT and whatever else is accepted anymore. Versions of Iowa Republicans' religious freedom bill have been introduced in the Senate annually since at least 2018. This is the first time the bill passed out of the chamber. With its passage out of the Senate, SF 2095 is eligible for consideration in the House. Public funding for church-managed programs. Counties and townships would be allowed to devote money to religious organizations for public services under a bill that passed out of the House with bipartisan support. The bill, House File 2264, would allow church-managed organizations to receive public money if it is for a project that benefits the public and does not require any religious or secular services, educational programs, or participation requirements. Representative Ann Osmondson, Republican of Volga's, Volga, said the bill would allow public support for projects such as food pantries and homeless shelters. The bill passed Tuesday near, near unanimously in the House with a vote of 93 to 2. The bill now heads to the Iowa Senate where it will need to pass and be signed by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds before becoming law. Iowa City Schools review elementary costs ahead of budget cuts. District prepares to trim $7.5 million over the next two years by Grace King. Iowa City school officials are examining how much is spent operating elementary schools, looking closely at enrollment and cost data for each building as the district prepares to trim $7.5 million in expenses from the budget over the next two years. Last week, the Iowa City Financial Oversight Committee, which is comprised of school board members, was presented with information about the cost per elementary student and projected enrollment at each of the district's 21 elementary schools. The anticipated enrollment of Iowa City Elementary Schools for the 2024-25 school year ranges drastically from 126 students at the smallest school to 475 at the largest. Smaller schools can potentially be less efficient to operate, with the base costs of the school remaining the same, spread out across a smaller number of students. Base staffing costs are essential to every school. They include positions such as a principal, custodian, classroom teachers, and general education support staff, such as secretaries and paraprofessionals. You have one principal in a school that serves 200 students and one principal in a school that serves 400 students. Clearly, the cost of providing that administrative service for each student is lower in the larger school. Iowa City Schools Chief Financial Officer Adam Kurth said in an interview with the Gazette, there are limits to that. It's not as though just going larger and larger creates more efficiency, Kurth said. District leaders do not have a goal of creating same-sized schools, Iowa City Schools Deputy Superintendent Chase Ramey said. The goal is to create schools reflective of our entire school community, Ramey said. At the same time, we do need to be good stewards of taxpayer money, so we look for ways to make sure we are operating this whole system in the most effective and efficient way possible. Enrollment at Iowa City Elementary Schools next year is projected to be 70% of the district's capacity. This leaves about 3,000 open spots for elementary students in the Iowa City Community School District. 
District administrators are expected to make recommendations to the school board on how to reduce costs at the next board meeting, which is at 6 p.m. February 27th at the Educational Services Center. This could include a recommendation on changing the district's weighted resource allocation model, Superintendent Matt Degner said during the committee meeting. The weighted resource allocation model has five levels, with level one being the smallest class size, to control class sizes based on rates of students who face barriers to their education. For example, if 70% or more students in a classroom receive free or reduced price lunch, that class size will be smaller than a classroom that has fewer than 70%. Degner told the committee whatever changes are made to achieve the budget goal will be painful. Everything the district is doing now we believe is good for kids, he said. The information presented to the Financial Oversight Committee is being used to inform teaching and learning decisions, not to make financial decisions, Chris said. That means deploying staff in a way that maximizes what they're bringing to our district and the impact they can have on kids, he said. As we talk about efficiency, are we best leveraging the staffing we have in the district, Kurth said. The Iowa City School District spends substantially higher on staffing, 86% of the general budget, than most districts across the state, Kurth said, noting other school districts in Iowa range from 79% to 80% of their budgets spent on staffing. This is partially because the district used federal elementary and secondary school emergency relief, which expires September 30th, to add more teaching staff to classrooms to decrease class sizes and help students learn during the pandemic. The Iowa City Community School District received $41.5 million in federal funds over three allocations. The district is in year two of reducing the number of teachers by about 4% in response to the federal pandemic aid expiring and Iowa's per-pupil state aid failing to keep up with rising costs. Ramey said any reduction in teaching staff at this point would be through attrition, whether that's retirements or educators leaving the school district for other opportunities. Our goal and plan is anyone who wants to remain employed with us will have a job with us next year. Those circumstances could change, but we remain committed to our employees while we navigate the challenges, Ramey said. Washington's mayor resigns. He was charged last year with sex abuse by Kaylin McCain of the Southeast Iowa Union. The Washington City Council voted unanimously Tuesday to accept a letter of resignation from Mayor Jaron Rosian. City officials had called on Rosian to step down as he passed the one-year mark of a voluntary unpaid leave of absence while facing a charge of third-degree sexual abuse. Last month, the council voted to send a letter asking for him to resign. I've struggled immensely with this decision, Rosian's resignation letter said. I ran for office to better our community, and I keep returning to what is best for the city of Washington. Ultimately, continuing on with a leave of absence slows progress. The letter listed a resignation date of March 1st. Rosian declined a request for comment Tuesday night. The 5-0 vote with council member Ivan Rangel absent came with little fanfare. City officials said they were, they were eager to move on from the subject, a frequent elephant in the room, since news of Rosian's arrest broke in January 2023. I believe we need to move forward and accept the resignation, Mayor Pro Tem Millie Youngquist said. I would hope that we could move forward and not spend a lot of time rehashing the past, what has happened over the last year. Rosian is accused of making crude comments to a male customer at Rosian's bar, JP's 207, and touching the man's thigh and genitalia from outside the man's pants in January 2023. He has pleaded not guilty. The trial has been delayed four times and currently is scheduled to begin May 21st. Reached for comment Monday, some council members said they were relieved to see the discussion on Tuesday's agenda, saying the past year was rife with uncertainty about long-term goals. Youngquist has served in her backup role as mayor since Rosian's arrest. 
It's time to put someone in the mayor's position that wants to be there, Council Member Franz Steiger said. Not that Millie's not doing a great job. She's, she's doing a great job, but that's not what she signed up for. Also Tuesday, council members voted to hold a special election to choose a new mayor. The council tentatively set the election for April 30th, but city attorney Kevin Olson said the Washington County Auditor's Office has the final say in the election date. Olson said the election could be delayed until July because May and June are a busy time for the Auditor's Office. Youngquist said she felt confident about the city's position in the meantime as the local government hits budget planning season. I think that we've kept the city going. We've done everything we should at the appropriate time, she said. I don't feel that it's been all that rocky, just the uncertainty of it perhaps has made it difficult, but I think we're in good shape. Rosian has been mayor since 2018. He ran unopposed when he sought re-election in 2021. Asked about the possibility of putting her name on the ballot, Youngquist said she was thinking of it, but had not yet decided. Whoever does throw their name in the hat will have big shoes to fill. Rosian's list of accomplishments includes an assertive stance in negotiations involving an international railroad merger, compromise seeking on an overhaul to municipal parking ordinances, steering the city through a pandemic, and a history of volunteerism with local nonprofits, to name a few. Iowa School allowed workers amid asbestos contamination. OSHA fines Northland $70,000 in addition to earlier DNR fine. By Jared Strong of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. A Northeast Iowa school district allowed some of its employees and other workers to be inside an asbestos-contaminated building despite a warning from state regulators to vacate it, according to state records. That has resulted in significant fines for the Northland Community School District, which undertook an expansive renovation in 2022 of its middle and high school complex near Coggett. The Iowa Occupational Safety and Health Administration has fined the district $70,000. The Gazette reported earlier that the Iowa Department of Natural Resources also has fined the district $6,000 over the incident. Employees were potentially exposed to asbestos fibers in the air when performing daily tasks, according to Iowa OSHA documents obtained by the Iowa Capital Dispatch. The contamination resulted from a multi-million dollar renovation of the buildings that included the addition of air conditioning. It happened in August 2022 when a worker who was prepping a floor for new carpet used a floor buffer to scrape old glue that, had, that remained from a previous carpet installation. Months before, the underlying vinyl tile had been identified by workers as potentially containing asbestos, a fibrous material that can become airborne and inhaled. Asbestos fibers can become lodged in people's lungs and can cause irritation, scarring, and cancer. The state has strict rules about its handling and disposal. Rather than remove the asbestos-containing tiling at considerable expense, the district opted to leave it untouched, according to Iowa OSHA records. It's unclear why the worker used the buffer on the tiles, but after the work began, another worker noted the potential for contamination. Someone alerted the Iowa DNR, which recommended that the building be vacated. That didn't happen, Iowa OSHA records show. Instead, at least 10 renovation workers signed a waiver of liability to continue working that said, I understand the Iowa Department of Natural Resources is recommending I do not work in this area due to the possibility of contaminated air with asbestos fibers. I'm choosing to disregard the recommendation and continue working, according to, the, to an Iowa DNR order. DNR also believed there to be at least 10 more people in the building that had not signed the waivers, and it is unclear if they were aware of the asbestos issue, the order said. Dave Hager, who was superintendent of the school district at the time and was told to clear the building of people, declined to comment for this article because he is no longer with the district. He is now superintendent of the Maquoketa Valley and Edgewood-Colesburg school districts. 
Initial testing showed significant asbestos contamination in the area of the disturbed tiles, and those who continued to work were away from the area. However, subsequent tests revealed widespread contamination in other rooms. About 20 school employees might have been exposed to asbestos, Iowa OSHA noted, but the department concluded that exposure was limited. House Passes Bill to Block Code that Tracks Gun Buys by Tom Barton Iowa House Republicans advanced a bill Tuesday to prohibit use of a planned merchant code for credit card transactions at gun retailers meant to detect suspicious firearms and ammunition sales. House File 2464 would prevent banks and credit card companies from using a merchant code that would differentiate a gun shop from a general merchandise or sporting goods store. It would also prohibit banks and credit card companies from declining a transaction based solely on a firearms code attached to the store, and it would bar state and local governmental agencies from keeping a record or registry of privately owned firearms except for records kept during the regular course of a criminal investigation, a criminal prosecution, any court case, or is otherwise required by law. The bill was amended to codify current standard practices of financial institutions to provide consumer protections, including to help detect and deter illegal or suspicious activities, and also prevent fraud by alerting customers of a suspicious purchase on their bank card or credit card. Representative Phil Thompson, Republican of Boone, chair of the House Public Safety Committee, said the bill aims to prevent financial institutions from creating a de facto gun registry. Merchant category codes are used to classify different types of businesses by the types of goods and services sold. The U.S. Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network has set guidance to financial institutions, encouraging them to use new merchant category codes that would help them monitor and report suspicious activity connected to illegal firearms trafficking, money laundering, proceeds from trafficking in firearms, or other criminal activity. Major credit card companies are moving to make a merchant code available for firearm and ammunition retailers to comply with a new California law that will allow banks to potentially track suspicious gun purchases and report them to law enforcement. Visa, MasterCard, and American Express had paused implementation of the new code because some GOP-led states are working to block its enactment. Supporters of the bill said the code infringes on privacy and Second Amendment rights. The problem is this is a huge violation of financial privacy, and this is just a back way to keep a list of privately owned firearms, Thompson said. Gun safety advocates say the code, approved by an international organization in 2022, can be used as a tool to help banks and financial institutions report suspicious gun purchasing activity to law enforcement, consisting with their existing, consistent with their existing obligations to report suspicious activity related to terrorism financing or other illicit activities. The bill passed the House 68 to 27 with Democrats opposed. It now heads to the Senate for consideration. Woman dies in East Iowa house fire. A woman died early Sunday in a house fire in Quasquaton, according to the Buchanan County Sheriff's Office. The Sheriff's Office was called to the 700 block of East Cedar Street about 3 a.m. when a neighbor stepped outside to let dogs out and saw flames coming from the home of Catherine Marie Crawford, 69, a news release states. Deputies and firefighters from the Quasquaton Fire Department arrived on the scene, and neighbors told them that the window the flames were coming from was Crawford's bedroom. First responders were unable to enter immediately due to excessive smoke and heat, according to the release. After the fire was contained, Crawford was found inside the house and later pronounced dead. The fire's cause is under investigation. Kidnapping charge filed after woman's body found in Amana by Emily Anderson. A Hiawatha man has been charged with kidnapping a woman who was found dead Sunday in Amana. 
McKinley Luisma, 23, is charged in Lynn County with first-degree kidnapping and conspiracy to commit a forcible felony. According to criminal complaints, Luisma admitted to law enforcement that he and another person kidnapped Melody Hoffman, 20, from Morgan Creek Park in Lynn County on Saturday evening. Luisma has been in an intimate relationship with Hoffman, but also was in a relationship with another woman, he told police. Luisma and the other person bound Hoffman of Marion with duct tape around her wrists, placed her in the trunk of Luisma's car, and drove to several different locations before taking off her clothes and leaving her at a pond at 220th Trail and 38th Avenue in Amana, according to the complaint. Hoffman's body was discovered Sunday morning at the pond. A preliminary investigation by the Iowa State Medical Examiner's Office indicates her cause of death was strangulation, though she also had numerous stab and slash wounds on her body. Data from her iPhone and Apple Watch indicated she was at Morgan Creek Park on Saturday night when her heartbeat intensified before it either stopped or the watch was deactivated. Investigators got a warrant to search Luisma's car and found Hoffman's phone case, a white Apple watch band with blood on it, a bungee cord, a towing rope, gloves, and clothing matching the clothing Hoffman had been wearing at Morgan Creek Park. Luisma ad admitted details of the kidnapping to a special agent from the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, but didn't say whether he had caused Hoffman's death. He stated Hoffman was subject to being physically beaten while she was with him and the other person and was begging to be let go, and that if investigators were to ask the other individual what happened, the other individual would probably put the blame on him, the complaint states. The other individual involved in the kidnapping has not yet been arrested. The investigation into the case is being conducted by the Marion Police Department, the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, the Lynn County Sheriff's Office, and the Iowa County Sheriff's Office. Louis Mose was arrested Tuesday and is being held in the Lynn County Jail. A judge sent his, set his bail at $50,000 cash only. Louisman is, is accused of kidnapping Hoffman while he was out on bail for an assault charge. In January, he was charged with willful injury resulting in bodily injury after police say he punched, kicked, and kneed a man, causing bruising and swelling to the man's face and a cut on his lower back. Luisma was released from jail on a $5,000 bond. Linmar settles with parent group over gender policy. Deal calls for $20,000 to settle lawsuit over policy rescinded by school board in 2023 by Grace King. The Linmar School Board this week approved an agreement to resolve a lawsuit challenging a policy that would have protected transgender and non-binary students. In settling, the district's insurance company will pay the plaintiffs, a parent group named Parents Defending Education, $20,000, according to a news release from the district Tuesday. No district funds are being paid toward the settlement. Parents Defending Education is an organization that includes parents, students, and other concerned citizens with a mission to prevent the politicization of K-12 education, according to the lawsuit. The group contended the Linmar policy, passed in April 2022 and since rescinded, allowed children to make fundamentally important decisions about gender identity without parental involvement and to hide those decisions in school from their parents. The district's policy spelled out inclusive practices for transgender students, including giving students access to restrooms, locker rooms, or changing areas that correspond with their gender identity. The board believes the time and resources of the district are better spent looking forward than continuing to defend a lawsuit about a policy that has not been in effect for nearly a year, a statement from the school district said. The policy was rescinded by the board in March 2023 over uncertainty about an issue 
in the Iowa legislature. A bill, which passed and became law last year, prohibits a school district from knowingly giving false or misleading information to a parent or guardian of their child's gender identity or intention to transition to a different gender than listed on the student's birth certificate. And we'll finish our first half with some notes from the Capital Notebook section of today's paper. Senate OK's repeal of gender balance rules. Iowa Senate lawmakers passed a bill Tuesday that would repeal requirements that Iowa's boards and commissions have an equal number of men and women. Supporters of Senate File 2096 said the gender balance rules are an unfair quota and members of boards and commissions should be selected only by their merit and qualifications. Opponents said it rolls back a landmark achievement toward gender equity in the state. The bill passed the chamber 32 to 15 with support from Republicans and opposition from nearly all Democrats. It would need to pass in the House to be and be signed by Governor Kim Reynolds before becoming law. Iowa's 16 and 17 year olds would be allowed to care for younger children unsupervised for brief periods at child care centers. House File 2305 passed the Iowa House on a 55 to 36 vote with Democrats largely opposed. The bill now moves to the Senate for consideration where it will need to win approval before being, si before being sent to the governor to be signed into law. Increased penalties for swatting, the term for when an individual calls public safety agencies with fake warnings of criminal or violent activity in order to draw a response from law enforcement, passed unanimously in the Iowa Senate. Under Senate File 2161, swatting would become a Class D felony in Iowa, punishable by up to five years in prison and a fine between $750 and $7,500. With its passage out of the Senate, Senate File 2161 is eligible for consideration in the Iowa House. Driving in the left lane of traffic without passing would be illegal and unpunishable by a $135 fine under legislation approved by the Iowa Senate. The bill passed the Senate with bipartisan support on a 38 to 8 vote and now is eligible for consideration in the Iowa House. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 21st, 2024 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Joanne E. Claypool, 83, passed away February 17th at Bishop Drum Retirement Center in Johnston. A graveside service will be held at 2 p.m. Friday, February 23rd at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. For the last 10 years, Joanne lived in Urbandale, but was previously a resident of Marion. She enjoyed working as an analyst for Rockwell Collins in Cedar Rapids. In lieu of flowers, memorial may, memorials may be made to Animal Rescue League of Iowa or Noah's Ark Animal Foundation. Online condolences may be directed to the family at cedarmemorial.com. Richard Lee Bietekofer, age 76, passed away peacefully with his loving family by his side, on Saturday, February 17th at St. Luke's Hospital. He was a 48-year cancer survivor but couldn't overcome the long-term complications of radiation he received during his cancer treatment. Rich was born November 22, 1947 in Postville but grew up in the little Switzerland of Iowa on a farm outside of Elgin to Harry and Rose Denler Bietekoffer. He was the third of six children. He attended Cherry Valley Country School for a year and graduated from Valley High School in 1966. He grew up doing farm chores, farm labor for neighbors, working at the sweet corn canning factory, and helping with the family painting business. Rich continued his education at Upper Iowa University from 1966 to 1970 and received his B.S. in chemistry. He was then drafted into the United States Army and served from September 9, 1970 to April 11, 1972. 
Rich married the love of his life, Donna Hunt, on August 4, 1973 in Olwine. He then went to the University of Iowa from 1976 to 1979 and earned his pharmacy degree, becoming a registered pharmacist. During pharmacy school, he worked as a pharmacy tech at the VA hospital. He then worked as a staff pharmacist at St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids for 33 years from 1979 to his retirement in 2012. A celebration of life for Rich will be held on Saturday, February 24th at 11 a.m. at Unity Center in Cedar Rapids. Burial services will take place at a later date at Illyria Cemetery in Elgin. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to Illyria Community Church, the St. Luke's Hospital Foundation, or the Cedar Rapids Public Library. Kathleen Anderson, 77, of Anamosa, passed away on Thursday, February 15th at Pinnacon Senior Living in Anamosa. A memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, February 24th at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion with visitation one hour prior to the service. A private inurnment will take place following the service at the Springville Cemetery in Springville. Kathleen was born on November 4, 1946, the daughter of Kenneth and Bernita Wild Anderson. She grew up in rural Springville. Upon graduation from Springville High School, class of 1964, she moved and worked in Marion, Cedar Rapids, and Iowa City. Kathleen will be greatly missed by all who knew and loved her. Memorial donations may be made to the family or your local Humane Society in her honor. Please share a memory of Kathleen at MurdochFuneralHome.com. Paul Jean McKean of Mesa, Arizona, was born December 15, 1931 in Chicago. His parents were Eugene McKean and Dorothy McKean. Paul graduated from Mount Vernon High School in 1949. He attended Cornell College from 1949 to 1952. He was drafted and joined the U.S. Army on August 18, 1952. Prior to his basic training, he married the love of his life, Donna Jean Hoff, who was also a student at Cornell. He served as an artillery battalion providing perimeter defense at Anchorage, Alaska through 1954. After his military service, he returned to college and attended the University of Iowa through 1956, graduating with a B.A. in economics. He began a career in direct sales while studying at the university and also began a lifelong passion as a supporter of the University of Iowa and its sports programming. Paul remained in the sales and finance business, building three successful businesses, including Lifetime Enterprises and Budget Acceptance Plan from 1956 through 1999. Paul's passion for the University of Iowa sports programs continued. Paul and his brother, Dick McKean, were instrumental in the development and expansion of the Johnson County Iowa Club and developed friendships with the coaches and staff of all programs. They helped develop the tradition of the Johnson County Iowa Club breakfasts before each home football game. For their support and efforts on behalf of the Iowa Club, they were both honored as honorary lettermen in 1983. Paul continued to bleed black and gold. Recently, he was honored by the University of Iowa in 2023 as one of the eight over 80 graduates who continue to give back to others and to the university. Paul and Donna moved to Mesa, Arizona in 1999, and Paul continued to sell long-term care insurance and provided consulting services while he invested in real estate. Memorial contributions may be made in support of Paul Jean McKean to the University of Iowa Center for Advancement. Robert Andrew Hamilton, 55, of Cedar Rapids, passed away February 18th. Visitation, 9 to 11 a.m., Monday, February 26th, at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. Funeral service, 11 a.m., Monday, February 26th, at Cedar Memorial. A complete obituary can be viewed or online condolences are welcome at cedarmemorial.com. 
Dolores D. Anderson, 87, of Cedar Rapids, moved to her heavenly home Friday, February 16th. Visitation will be held from 4 to 8 p.m. on Saturday, February 24th at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service. A funeral service will take place at 1 p.m. on Sunday, February 25th at the funeral home with an additional visitation from 11, to 1 p 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Burial, Linwood Cemetery, Cedar Rapids. A live stream of the funeral service may be accessed on the funeral home website. Dee was born December 29, 1936, in rural Marion, the daughter of James Earl and Annie Lindley Van Venthuysen. She was united in marriage to John William Anderson, Jr. on December 5, 1956, in Iowa City. The couple remained married for over 60 years. Dee and John were residents of Cedar Rapids for over 48 years after relocating from Des Moines. She worked for U.S. West until her retirement. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. Please share a memory of D at MurdochFuneralHome.com. Robert F. Waite, 78, of Johnston, Iowa, passed away on February 19th, surrounded by his children. Bob was born to Jean and George Waite on July 5, 1945. He was the youngest of three children and was adored by his sister Nancy and brother George. He spent his youth exploring the woods and caves of Jones County. He briefly attended college in Rochester, Minnesota, and had plans to become a sixth grade science teacher. That plan was cut short after the death of his father in 1964. He returned to Anamosa to help care for his mother before enlisting in the Army. He served in Berlin from 1965 to 1968 during the Vietnam War. In 1970, he married Nancy Tigan. They raised their children, Stephanie, Jenny, and John, in Dexter, Iowa. Bob and Nancy were involved in the community and loved Dexter. Bob served as both a council member and mayor during the late 1980s and 90s. He worked as a sweater salesman, and when he wasn't traveling, he spent time camping with his children and nephews. Later, he and Nancy retired to Anamosa, where he loved being recognized as Little Bobby Waite. After Nancy's death in 2005, Bob spent his years enjoying music and nature in Anamosa. In 2019, Bob relocated to Johnston to be closer to family. Bob did not want any services and probably is upset that this announcement is published. In a final act of disobedience, his family would like to invite you to a gathering to remember Bob on May 11th, beginning at 2 p.m. at the General Store in Anamosa, Iowa. That concludes today's obituaries. Moving to today's editorial page, there is one letter to the editor today. It is from Mark Consett of Cedar Rapids. The headline reads, Grassley Ernst, Ernst's Vote Not for National Security. Senators Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst are up to no good again. While our southern border remains open, another $95 billion national security package was just approved in the Senate. I have no idea why they have coined the aid as being for national security because none of this money will do anything to secure our nation. Only a small fraction of that money would be necessary to complete the fence and put into place what is required to secure our border. Yet for some reason, Iowa's Republican senators voted to approve spending money we don't have to protect and defend other countries while leaving our own country wide open to the continued invasion. More than 10 million illegal crossings seems like an invasion to me. In short, it's time for Grassley and Ernst to step down and make room for some new people who love and favor our country and its interests more than the rest of the world and its problems. To make matters even worse, to make to even make this aid available, the U.S. will likely borrow more money from one of our most formidable adversaries, China. That would be like going to your worst enemy to borrow money to pay for something you can't afford to in turn give it away to someone who can never repay you. What a twisted mess we are in as a country. 
That is a letter, a letter to the editor in today's Gazette from Mark Consett of Cedar Rapids. Here is a guest column, column by William Lambers. The headline is, Ukraine Aid Bill Also Fights Hunger. It's urgent that the House of Representatives vote in favor of the Ukraine Aid Bill, which also has life-saving humanitarian assistance. The Senate has already approved this vital legislation. There's over $9 billion in funding in this foreign aid bill providing food and other humanitarian assistance for Gaza and the West Bank, Ukraine, and other populations caught in conflict zones across the globe. It will make a huge impact for millions of starving people. This humanitarian aid is desperately needed as hunger escalates in Gaza from the Israel-Hamas war, in Ukraine, and in other conflict-affected nations such as Sudan and the Democratic Republic of Congo. The U.S. Senate made the right decision voting in favor of this foreign aid bill, most of which sends aid to Ukraine to resist Russia's invasion. The House of Representatives must now approve this critical legislation that also supports Israel and Taiwan in addition to the humanitarian aid. People are starving now and can't wait for politics. Children are at risk of deadly malnutrition in conflict zones. Bread for the World is encouraging the House to pass the foreign aid bill, stating the package would also address ongoing USAID shortfall, preventing drastic funding cuts for multiple ongoing crises. Bread now urges the House to take immediate action and pass the legislation as is. Humanitarian assistance was part of President Joe Biden's original funding request in October for Ukraine and Israel aid. Funding for U.S. border security was also included, but Republicans rejected Biden's proposal, eventually leading to the smaller bill focusing on foreign aid. The war in Ukraine has worsened the global hunger crisis. The UN World Food Program has long used food from Ukraine for its relief operations. Because of Russia's invasion, the WFP now has a large relief mission inside Ukraine, feeding families and even helping demine de farmland. There are many conflict zones with hunger, too. Wars in Sudan, Gaza, Yemen, Congo, Burkina Faso, Syria, and other nations have caused severe hunger. Famine potentially looms. Drought, along with conflict, is causing food shortages in East Africa. WFP and other relief agencies don't have enough funds to keep up. They need this aid package with humanitarian funding to pass in the House. These resources will be vital both to save lives and prevent further global backsliding on poverty reduction, particularly in places like Ukraine, Gaza, and Sudan, where the responses have already fallen dramatically short of what's needed, said Kate Phillips Barrasso, Vice President of Global Policy and Advocacy at Mercy Corps. Bread for the World encourages citizens to write their representatives in the U.S. House, urging them to pass the foreign aid bill with the humanitarian assistance. We can't let nations slide toward famine because of petty politics here at home. The House must approve the Ukraine aid bill and provide life-saving food to millions of starving war victims. William Lambers is an author who partnered with the UN World Food Program on the book, Ending World Hunger. Justices Approve Search Warrant Despite Claims Deputy Lied by William Morris of the Des Moines Register. How many times can a police officer be wrong or flat out dishonest on a warrant application before the resulting warrant is invalid? Quite a few, according to a divided Iowa Supreme Court. In a 4-3 ruling, the court last Friday reversed a decision suppressing evidence against Jesse Harbach who was changed, charged with operating while intoxicated after rolling his car over in 2021 near Delhi. Delaware County Deputy Mitch Nipper, who investigated the crash, subsequently filed an application for a warrant to draw blood from Harbach, stating that he refused to take a preliminary breath or field sobriety test, had bloodshot and watery eyes, slurred and mumbled speech, and smelled of alcohol. 
The only problem, according to the judge handling Harbach's case, was that none of that was true. Nipper's body camera footage did not show Harbach had slurred speech or bloodshot eyes, and given that a later blood draw found no alcohol in Harbach's system, the court questioned how Nipper could have spelled it on his breath. The blood draw did detect methamphetamine, for which Harbach was charged. As for field sobriety and breathalyzer testing, Harbach was not asked to undergo either, according to the video presented. Finding that the warrant application would not have supported probable cause without the false statements, the judge suppressed the results and the appeals court affirmed. Supreme Court Justice Dana Oxley, joined by Justices David May and Christopher McDonald and Ju Chief Justice Susan Christensen, said that's not how courts should view warrant challenges and that later courts should not take a grudging or negative attitude toward the probable cause finding of the magistrate who approved the warrant in the first place. When officers seek a warrant, it's not enough that a statement be incorrect, Oxley wrote, and the defendant must show that the officer was intentionally or recklessly misleading. The majority found Harbach failed to present any such evidence. The justices also took issue with the trial judge's factual findings. Oxley wrote that the video was not so clear or the angle so direct to conclusively see the state of Harbach's eyes, nor was the audio clarity good enough to show he was not slurring his words. And while the blood test three hours after the crash detected no alcohol, an earlier hospital procedure detected ethanol in Harbach. Oxley wrote that the majority takes judicial notice that this finding indicates some alcohol in Harbach's blood and thus supports the deputy's claim to have smelled alcohol at the scene. The decision did not set aside Nipper's claim that Harbach refused field sobriety and breathalyzer testing, but found that the remaining challenged statements were enough to support probable cause and overturn the suppression ruling. Justice Thomas Waterman, joined by Justices Edward Mansfield and Matthew McDermott, wrote that he would have affirmed the decision to throw out the warrant. Waterman agreed with the lower courts that the video did not support Nipper's claims and that Nipper made mis misstatements intentionally or recklessly on the application. Moreover, he wrote the majority chose to give Nipper the benefit of the doubt on every disputed fact, despite other examples where the deputy was clearly in the wrong. Delaware County Sheriff John LeClaire did not respond to a message asking about the decision and whether his office had any concerns with how Nipper handled Harbach's investigation. Attorney Maria Rutenberg, representing Harbach, told the register she was disappointed in the decision but noted that Harbach has not been convicted of any crime and still will be able to contest his charge in court. And we have time to finish with a few sports items. Hawkeyes hang on for big road win. Iowa picks up second straight quad one victory by Mike Haas. Iowa earned its biggest men's basketball win of the season last night. The Hawkeyes upset Michigan State 78-71 at Breslin Center. Iowa had a 16-point lead two minutes into the second half. The Spartans whittled it to 70-65 with 2.31 left. Then Iowa reinserted freshman center Owen Freeman, who played just eight minutes in the game because of foul trouble. Freeman immediately fed Peyton Sanford for a layup and then scored on a dunk with 1.14 left for a 74-65 edge. The Spartans got no closer than seven points after that. Iowa got its second quad one win in four days and improved to 8-8 in the Big Ten, 16-11 overall. It's the first time the Hawkeyes have been 500 in the league since they were 3-3. Michigan State's three-game winning streak was snapped as it fell to 9-7-17-10. Junior forward Peyton Sanford had a game-high 22 points. Teammate Ben Cricky had 18 points and a season-high 14 rebounds. The Hawkeyes scored 21 of the game's last 27 points in the first half for a 45-33 lead. Michigan State led 27-24 with 6.34 left in the half, 
but the Hawkeyes scored the next 10 points for the eighth and final lead change of the half. Patrick McCaffrey came off the bench to lead Iowa's first half scoring with 12 points in 11 minutes, making all four of his field goal attempts. Cricky had an 11.9 rebound half. He had averaged 7.0 points and 2.7 rebounds over his previous three games. Iowa shot 57.1 in the half to the Spartans 37.9. They built their lead despite the absence of Freeman, who was taken out of the game for the rest of the half after getting a second foul with 16.56 remaining. He got two second-half fouls in the first 3.29 of the second half and was again removed. Iowa plays at number 12 Illinois, 10-4, 19-6, on Saturday. Links have become a regional final regular. North Lynn faces Edgewood-Coldsburg tonight in 13th consecutive regional final by Jeff Linder. There's no selective memory here. North Lynn is making his 13th consecutive appearance in a girls' basketball regional final, and Coach Brian Wheatley said, I remember all of them. Recent memories have been fond. The Lynx will try to move past the regional final round and on to the state tournament for the sixth straight year. They'll take a 22-1 record and a Class 1A number one ranking into their battle tonight with Edgewood-Colesburg, 19-4. Tip-off is 7 p.m. at Manchester. It is one of three regional finals involving area teams. Also in 1A, number 9 Montezuma, 19-4, faces number 8 Anita CAM, 21-2, at Norwalk. In the lone 2A area matchup, number 6 Iowa City Regina, 19-4, meets number 11 Cascade, 16-6, at Cedar Rapids. Kennedy. North Lynn's streak of regional finals under Wheatley began in 2012, and they have run the gamut in outcome and post-game emotion. After losing the first two, the Lynx broke through in 2014. All told, they are 8-4 in this current streak and have been money since 2019. It's been a lot of fun, Wheatley said, but you don't have a lot of time to reflect. Everything is going into tonight because Edco is a team that has really improved and is going to come out with a lot of confidence. The Lynx will have to contend with Edco post Audrey Helmrichs, who averages 16.1 points and 12.4 rebounds per game and shoots nearly 60% from the floor. They're going to want to get it inside, Wheatley said. Helmrichs is really strong and uses her body well. We're going to want to make it a full-court game as much as we can. Led by guard trio Cameron Kurt, Macy Bogue, and Molly Bogue, the, the Lynx average more than 18 steals per game. Four days later, Regina's come-from-behind regional semifinal win over Maculcata Valley is still a bit incomprehensible, even on tape. It was chaos, Cascade coach Mike Sconza said. They made plays, and that's what good teams do. Regina scored five points in the final 10 seconds of regulation, a three-pointer, a steal, and a basket, then won in overtime 61-53. to the Regals and the Cougars have been two of the area's most dependable winners in the past 20 years. We're going to have to play really well, Sconza said. We'll need some things to go our way to have a chance. The kids know that. We have to make Regina play our style, and that's to make it a grind. We're not going to be flashy, Sconza said, but I've really been happy. Ever since we got blown out against Monticello on January 26th, we've been playing more rugged, tough defense. That's what I've been looking for. Less has been more for Panthers. A new rotation schedule has team on two-game win streak by Colbert. After a disappointing loss at Illinois-Chicago on February 11th, UNI men's basketball coach Ben Jacobson began to search for answers. Despite the regular season having just five games remaining, the Panthers had yet to consistently play at a high level, something their Missouri Valley Conference peers expected by picking them second in the preseason poll. So when it came to finding the right answers, the 18th-year coach knew not to overthink it or overcorrect. Instead, a message was sent the practice after that loss to the Flames that starters would play less going forward and bench players would play more. 
and by nature of that change the expectation was a team that would play harder and faster the rest of the season. That change, albeit in a small sample size, has proved productive as you and I have since recorded two double-digit wins. An 86-67 win at Valparaiso last Wednesday and 74-63 win at home against third-place Bradley on Sunday have the Panthers feeling good. We were able to cover things that we didn't cover the first time, that we played Bradley because we played so hard, Jacobson said. So it wasn't scheme. We tweaked a couple things, and that helped us on maybe four or five plays in the first half. But big picture, it was that we played really, really hard. In the two games since the adjustment with its rotation, UNI has had just one player eclipse 30 minutes in either game, and junior guard Nate Heiss said after, Wendy, after Sunday's win against the Braves that the Panthers' depth seemed to make a difference as players knew they'd be on the floor in shorter bursts. I didn't get any farther than how can we get three or four of these guys' minutes down so that they didn't so that they don't in their mind, again, if you're playing 35 to 38 minutes, you have to figure out where you're going to catch a little break, Jacobson said. When you're playing 25 to 28 minutes, you don't have to think about that. And then wanting to give some certainty to those guys on the bench that we've talked about all year. The next test for UNI, 15-12-9-7, and its new rotation is at Illinois State, 13-14-7-9. And despite the Redbirds' struggles this season, they enter Wednesday's night, Wednesday night's home game on an impressive two-win game streak, two-game win streak, excuse me, that included an upset of then number 23 Indiana State. They're doing a lot with their defense and playing really hard and playing well together, Jacobson said. They made four threes at Indiana State and beat Indiana State a week ago or so when they had just gotten ranked 23rd in the country. They made 14 threes Sunday, so they can do it either way. Here is today's sports schedule, events of area interest, girls basketball, class 1A and 2A regional finals, high school bowling, state tournament in Waterloo, class 1A individual and class 2A team. Men's Basketball, UNI at Illinois State at 7 p.m., DMAC at Kirkwood at 7.30 p.m. Women's Basketball, DMACC at Kirkwood at 5.30, Iowa State at Houston 7 p.m. Women's Swimming, Iowa at Big Ten Championships in West Lafayette, Indiana. Pro Hockey, Wichita at the Iowa Heartlanders at 6.35 p.m. There are no local televised games today, but on radio you can hear the Iowa State at Houston game Women's basketball game at 6.30 p.m. on KGYM. The girls basketball 1A regional final, Northland versus edgewood Colesburg is at 6.45 p.m. on crmlivesports.com. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 21, 2024. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
In Africa, five-year-old Cheru has no choice. She and millions like her must walk miles every day for dirty water. But together, we can end their walk by providing clean water close by. Instead of spending hours walking to get water that makes them sick, girls can be in a classroom that expands their minds and moms will gain back time to care for their families. Sons and daughters can grow up strong, finally free of sicknesses caused by dirty water. At World Vision, care about clean water runs deep. Deep enough to reach one new person with clean water every 10 seconds. Because every child, every person, everywhere deserves clean water and the chance to rise to their full potential. It's true. When you just add water, you change a life. Learn more at worldvision.org.